welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Again, good morning. Um, This is a historic day for our church, really. It's going to be the first time since acquiring this property back in the early 90s that uh, the elders of the church will be proposing a budget, present a budget to the congregation uh, for 2021 debt-free. And uh, it is, it's amazing. And uh, praise God, it is a significant milestone for our church and, uh, you know, I remember discussing six and a half years ago now during my pastoral call, the, uh, the debt situation we remained at over 460000 And uh, that was a major concern for a small church at that time. And uh, the members of this body responded. You all did uh, very generously and uh, toward these debt re- uh, reduction campaigns and other things over time. And if you happen to notice today's bulletin, our debt now sits... Right about 10000 11000 And uh, we got a couple payments to make this year, maybe a little year-end push to knock this out. And I thank everyone uh, for achieving this goal. It is, it's a huge accomplishment for us. And uh, glory be to God, and uh, may it continue to be. The question that many of you may have at this point then, considering this, is, Now what? Now what? Uh, that's why I'm doing a special message today. We're taking a break from Luke for this week. And uh, this is going to be from Matthew chapter 25. I've titled this one, The Ministry to the Saints. Now what is the question? That is an important question. We have addressed it previously at this church. In fact, the financial vision that we've had for our future has served as a significant motivator for our debt reduction, for paying off the debt over time, over the last few years. And uh, we have been giving, not folks, not just to experience a debt-free property. It's not the only reason we've been giving, uh, but because we've shared a common goal. A common goal. You know, sometimes future ambitions of a church, it's, it's referred to as a church's vision. A church's vision for the future, uh, and that idea of a vision has been tossed around a whole lot in different circles. Often a new building project is referred to as a vision. The importance of casting a vision is a really big deal for some churches. Um, pastors often get re- uh, recruited and hired not on the basis that they will preach the word faithfully, but with the expectation that they will be able to communicate a big vision, a big vision for a church. You hear that a lot, especially in large churches. I've read a number of books about it over the years, and it's been suggested by some that you've got to offer people a big vision, something that they can reach out and touch. You know, Jerry Robertson um, who many of you know has often said, you know, you got to show them something. Uh, you want them to come into a church and grab a root and growl, all right? Talking about getting your teeth and do something. Bite in. 
Grab a root and growl. And it's not unusual for a church to, to have a painting or, or possibly even a scale replica of a model church sitting out by their entryway uh, that, uh, towards the entrance. And it's implied, if you will join this church, we will all experience this in the future. You all should give sacrificially because we're going to build this building uh, so we can all enjoy a future building together. Magnificent building. Many of you have probably seen that. Now, I don't object to buildings at all. Trust me. If you know me, I like air conditioning. It's one of my favorite things. I like being inside. I like having a comfortable chair. Um, It's wonderful having a great building. Any congregation, as it spreads the gospel, goes to the community, as it grows, may need to consider at some point a larger building, a larger facility or space, and there's nothing inherently wrong with buildings. I want to say that. But is a newer facility, is a larger facility, a healthy and biblical motivation to join a local church? Is that a purpose for people to get behind uh, scripturally is that a good vision you know scripture doesn't indicate that you don't you don't see that in scripture in fact in ways it could sound a little bit uh, superficial you know a, a little bit empty as a church's vision vision but in calling being called as a pastor you know i have come to understand over time that you have to decide who you are as a person, as a person, number one, and as a congregation, number two. What is your identity? I imagine many of you have considered that over the years. Who am I? Who am I? Who are we as a church? Who are we together? What are my personal abilities? What are the capacities of us as people? What do we do well? Who are we? And a congregation really needs to be able to recognize itself when it looks in the mirror. Who are we? What do we do here at Port St. Lucie Bible Church? And I propose that we have discovered who we are. We have discovered who we are as a church. Um, we are doctrinally pure. We are biblically orthodox. That means right teaching. We reject and we despise religious legalism in its every form. We preach Christ, right? We're soteriologically, meaning in regards to salvation, reformed. We, it means that we recognize that Scripture clearly emphasizes that God is sovereign. We do not choose Him. He chose us. He chose to, to regenerate depraved sinners, dead in sin, and raise us from the dead again. Uh, he showers us with His redeeming love. And, and this affects, the fact that God has shown us this love affects how we react and how we, we respond to other Christians, not only across the street, but other Christians across the globe. Um, we are, by His choosing, all of us a part of Christ's body. For a personality, we are pretty warm and welcoming we are embracing, we're joy-filled, we share love and laughter, we love to laugh. Not to mean anything to offend the Wall Street moguls that might be amongst us. You know, we are basically a blue-collar church. We are a blue-collar church. It isn't that there aren't any, it's just that there aren't many 
who are wise and mighty and noble amongst us, right? Sounds like the early church. Sounds like the early church. And after initially being a little you know, perplexed about this need to cast a vision for a local church uh, over the past few years, I have heard the best advice on the subject that I could possibly get. Great advice. And, and everything suddenly made sense to me a few years back. After kind of rebuking, deriding a little bit as he does so well, uh, the popular, the progressive notion that pastors must first and foremost cast a magnificent vision in order to attract people. Uh, John MacArthur declared instead, he said, preach the word. Preach the word and God will provide your church with its vision for the future. God will reveal the work that God has prepared for you. That is what the Word of God does. Almost sounds biblical, doesn't it? That's because it is. Listen to this. This is in, in Paul's final pastoral epistle. He wrote Timothy. This is 2 Timothy 3.16, which men, many of you have memorized. But pay close, close attention. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness... So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You find it in the Word. Then he says, if you go straight to the next chapter, another unfortunate chapter break. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living of the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom, Timothy, preach the Word. That's where vision is found in and through the preaching of the Word. God's vision for each local church, it is illuminated through the Bible. Illuminated through the preaching of the Bible. And today we stand uh, greatly indebted as a congregation for God has revealed to us through His Word over the past few years what PSLBC, this church, is is to do. Um, That is what today's message addresses. What are we to do? What is next for Port St. Lucie Bible Church? Considering our personal identity, who we are, what we see in the mirror, what can we do? What can we do to further God's kingdom and to bring glory to Him? You know, some churches, they focus pretty exclusively on training foreign missionaries. Some devote a ministry to printing Bibles and other literature to be circulated. Some even establish a seminary on their campus for training pastors and teachers. And all of these, uh, all of these activities are godly and they are biblical. We know who we are. We're probably not going to start a seminary, right? There aren't many professors amongst us. Um, but that probably isn't the call that we have, and we have discovered that there is a distinct focus in Scripture that rarely gets seriously considered by Christians. Rarely, rarely gets considered by Christians. It's usually overlooked. And I have realized uh, that some of you have, have been here and heard this before. This might be a repeat for some of us. Uh, however, uh, we need to be reminded of what God's Word tells us and a number of our newest members and visitors 
have probably never, ever heard this. Sadly, it's possible you have never heard this at all. What is it? What is it? Our starting passage today that I'm going to leap from is Matthew chapter 25. And uh, you may turn there. I would keep a finger in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 that we read earlier. And I'd ask you as I read this to reflect upon our earlier reading from 2 Corinthians. Because Matthew 25 is very similar. Another large passage. It considers the same subject. Um, But it's usually misapplied. Very often misapplied. It describes the return of Christ Jesus, our King. The separation of the sheep from the goats. Those who are His beloved from those who will be damned. And, and please pay special attention to the evidence. To the evidence that determines entrance into God's kingdom versus eternal damnation. Again, this isn't how we are saved. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone as a gift of God. But this is the evidence we're saved, all right? In Matthew chapter 25, I'm going to begin reading at verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, and He will sit on His glorious throne, all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, these are the sheep, Come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, the king says, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, now this is the goats, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they they themselves will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, again he's speaking the brothers of mine, you did not do it to me. 
These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The parallels of Matthew chapter 25 with 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, they're unmistakable. Jesus here is commending the kindness that is expressed towards His saints, His holy ones, His redeemed. It's easy to discern that these brothers of mine, you see in verse 40, even the least of these brothers of mine is referring to believers in Christ's church. This is His body. This is why Jesus says, as often as you did it to one of them, you did it to me. This is my body. This is my church. They represent Christ's brethren, those who belong to him. And for clarification, who are Christ's brethren? Well, in Luke chapter 8, verse 19, we are informed of this about Christ's brethren. It says, Jesus' uh, Jesus' mother and, and brothers came to him. And they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. And it was reported to Jesus, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. In Mark 3 verse 33, Jesus is again heard defining this this brotherhood, the brethren, in the same way. The same way. Who are my mother and... And my brothers, looking about at those who were sitting around him, Jesus said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So, so who are Christ's brethren? Who are these brothers of mine? Folks, they are exclusively... Persons who hear God's word and do God's will. This this can only describe born-again Christians. Those who do God's word and do God's will. It it cannot describe unbelievers. Describes born-again Christians, God's elect, those whom he chose from the foundation of the world. We often refer to one another as brothers and sisters and as Christian brethren. There are songs written about it. I'm so glad we're a part of the family of God, right? We call one another brother and sister around here, correct? Because we have inherited the same salvation from God. Um, wherever the New Testament talks about our, our brethren or, or our brothers and, and our sisters, and it isn't clearly a genetic sibling, it's exclusively describing other Christians, and folks, not humanity in general not humanity in general, the unredeemed are described in Scripture as the children of the devil. They are the goats. They are the unregenerated that are not in Christ. They do not belong to Him. So the basis in Matthew chapter 25 for entrance into God's kingdom, the the evidence that is set forward, is that His sheep, they, they replicate God's affection for other Christians. They they replicate what God has shown to them to other Christians who are redeemed. Meanwhile, the basis of eternal damnation for the goats is their unwillingness to express love to God's sheep, 
to God's redeemed, toward the Christian brethren. This is the divine chasm between heaven and hell, between glory and damnation. Did the evidence at the judgment seat establish that you displayed love towards Christ's brethren? Did you express concern for Christ's church? Or didn't you? Or didn't you? Um, If you do, if you do, you supply suffering Christians. You supply those who suffer with, with bodily essentials. Food, clothing, water to drink. You care when they're sick. You're unashamed to visit them when they're in prison for preaching the gospel. That gives a whole new context to prison ministry because that's what it's talking about here. It's those Christians who were imprisoned for preaching the gospel. And Jesus says, you weren't ashamed to come and visit me when I was in prison speaking of the brethren. Meanwhile, unbelievers establish that they are goats through habitually failing to express any concern for, for these brothers of mine. They don't care about these brothers of mine. They aren't concerned about the sheep. Depart from me, they are told. So our eagerness, our, our eagerness to provide basic human essentials, basic human essentials to our brothers and our sisters, it's no small subject in Scripture. No small subject at all. You've seen a lot of writing about it already. Two full chapters in 2 Corinthians. That's just a start. Add on Matthew chapter 25. Uh, listen here in 1 John chapter 3.14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. And we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? This again is benevolence toward other Christians, the brethren. In James chapter 2, verse 15, we are told this, if a brother or a sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of, them, uh, one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. Look at the context of that passage we quote all the time. Faith without works is dead in the context of caring for the Christian brethren. Throughout your Christian life, I know it was true of mine pre-Christian and early in my Christian life, you've probably heard all of these passages applied over time uh, broadly, very generally, toward all humanity, right? Generally, towards humanity. They're often used to reinforce a social gospel, it is called, urging each of us to give generously to all, to everyone around us, and in, in Doing that, the social gospel says you are a good person. You're a good person. Notice, though, these really renowned passages. These are big-time passages that we hear quoted all the time. They actually direct compassion to be expressed primarily, first and foremost, toward the brethren, 
toward Christian brethren, those who are God's elect, those whom he chose, those whom he loved before the foundation of the world even, are Christian brothers and sisters in Christ whom he has shed his blood for. That's how much he cares for us. That's how much he cares for every Christian, no matter whether, uh, where they live or what their zip code is, right? According to all of these passages that I've read to you, charity is foremost to supply basic human essentials to our beloved brethren in need. Jesus refers to them again as these brothers of mine, the brethren. Um, a couple clarifications are important before I proceed. These passages are most often misinterpreted, misinterpreted in efforts to urge our compassion to be predominantly directed toward non-Christians. That's how it's normally uh, urged that we should behave, towards non-Christians, towards goats. It's, it's often declared that charity, it's an essential prerequisite, it is said, before bridging the gospel with unbelievers, if we really expect any of them to receive Christ as Savior, right? Who hasn't heard that? You know, pastors proclaim we, we have to meet their felt need first. All right? Have to meet their felt need. And that's what God uses to open their heart to receive the message of the gospel. You know, we, we got to prime the pump a little bit, apparently. Okay? Forget about other Christians who are redeemed in Christ. They, they don't need our compassion. They're going to heaven anyhow, right? Forget about them. They're already saved makes my head hurt folks makes my head hurt because there are big problems with this big problems with this you never find the bible suggesting that meeting a felt need like hunger that meeting a felt need like hunger prepares the heart to be ready for the gospel not even with jesus quite the contrary most of the 5000 whom jesus fed Oh, they turned away from following him. He fed them all, and they turned away. They all walked away. Didn't prepare anything there. Nine out of the ten lepers that Jesus healed. They turned away and walked away, never came back, not even to give thanks. Paul the Apostle was the greatest evangelist that we find in Scripture. I don't know of any scenarios where he ever bribed anyone to receive the gospel. Paul preached the scripture. He preached the forgiveness of sins in Christ. And those whom the Holy Spirit convicted of their sins in a redeeming way, they had their hearts opened sovereignly. Their hearts were prepared. Their hearts were opened by the Holy Spirit to believe in God without a bribe. Without a bribe. Whether it was a Philippian jailer, whether it was Lydia, whom it says God opened her heart to respond, whether it was the men at Athens, whoever it is, Scripture doesn't indicate that Paul had to meet a felt need before he could effectively bridge the gospel. You just don't see that requirement in Scripture. Scripture says that Paul's preaching came with full conviction of the Holy Spirit and the hunger that people needed met was for their sin to be forgiven. 
that is an indicator that their heart is ready for the gospel, all right? That they're full of conviction that they must be forgiven for they are in sin. Though Christians, we are to have a reputation of being good and kind and benevolent to and nice to those who are unsaved as well. That's a different passage. That's a different sermon. We are to have a good reputation for being kind towards all. But Scripture doesn't leave the impression that we should, as Christians, expend the bulk of our resources, the the bulk of our finances, in meeting the temporal felt needs of goats. Giving them free stuff when they don't want to come to church, they don't want to hear about the gospel, they're resistant to, to acknowledging that they are sinners. It doesn't take it anywhere. You can give them all the free stuff in the world and it won't change a heart. It won't change a heart. Um, where we are commanded to, uh, to primarily direct our compassion, this food, water, clothing, uh, basic human essentials that, that people need to survive, where we are commanded to direct that is toward the Christian brethren, towards Christians who don't have enough. We can also relieve their suffering with other things. You can have medical assistance as they need it, maybe a vaccination. But we don't have to go a ton further than that. We don't have to go a ton further than that. Why is that? Well, it's because in 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, Paul writes, Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we've brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. And describing Christians, he says this, If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. So the level of contentedness is with food and covering. That's what we are to provide, basic human essentials. Christians are to help one another with basic needs. Locally, we are to do that with other Christians. Still, there exist churches. There exist churches, churches in regions around the world, including the U.S. There are churches where very few lack basic food and covering and clean water. Not saying that there aren't any, but there aren't many. Uh, these things are generally achievable for well, not all, but for most Christians, food and covering. And with these, with these, we shall be content. Our church gives to the Salvation Army Food Bank every month to help them out in meeting some basic needs. Yet Paul commanded Christians, those who live in healthy economies, those that are functional, functional economies, uh, one like Thessalonica, he told them to follow his example, don't be unruly. Labor in hardship, work night and day not to burden others, work in quiet fashion. Eat your own bread, is what he told them for, quote, if anyone is not willing to work, neither shall he eat. That's Second Thessalonians 3.10. So, in a healthy functioning economy, people are to take care of their own needs, work really hard for that. And in a functioning economy of that, of that sort, similar to the U.S., We don't have a ton who don't have basic food and water. Christians living in functional economies, it is said, strive towards self-reliance. We take care of ourselves when we can. Uh, 
how then are we to fulfill this command by God to, to care for and love our Christian brethren? If most everyone around us has basic food and covering, at least the ones I see here, how then are we to fulfill this command to care for one another, to, to prove ourselves sheep rather than goats? How do, we, how do we meet the needs of impoverished Christians? Well, the answer was read to us earlier in 2 Corinthians. It, it's famously known uh, among the early churches as the ministry to the saints. The ministry to the saints. In the closing chapter of 1 Corinthians... Paul wrote, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you do also. It's a general command. And it says, On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. It is a gift they are carrying to Jerusalem. Think about this. Think about this and how we pastors routinely reference this passage when collecting money from the saints on the first day of every week, but seldom describe what this collection in context is actually supposed to be used for. Think about that. This collection on the first day of every week isn't to be designated for improved parking and softer chairs and building expansions. Paul doesn't prioritize those things. He probably suspected that somehow local churches will, will find a way to do that, right? And we will. We find a way to do those things. That isn't the command that he was worried about because it's not hard to get Christians to remember to have those nice things, right? He didn't focus on such amenities at all. These funds were to go to impoverished Christians in Jerusalem, hundreds of miles away, whom we believe were suffering a famine during this period, if if history is telling us right. Uh, That's probably accurate, because Romans chapter 15, verse 25, there Paul says this, I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. That's what the contribution was going for, for the poor. Now it is true that Jerusalem had been the epicenter uh, first of the gospel. It was the first place the gospel came from. And that the Gentile church, the Gentile churches, were in a sense indebted to the church in Rome for, their self, uh, for salvation, for the message of the gospel going out at first. But remember, Paul wasn't even a missionary sent out by Jerusalem. He was a missionary sent out from uh, Antioch. That is who sent them out. And he's not telling them to make some kind of remuneration to, to Antioch. He said, give this to Jerusalem, those who are poor. It is a ministry. He, he is framing a ministry to Christians, to Christians who suffer in a faraway land who don't have enough food and clothing. And this is whom the churches in the regions of Macedonia and Achaia, and we read in Galatia, they were people who they had never even met, 
They had never even met them, but these were Christians who had need. And when describing those churches, meaning Macedonia and Achaia, when he was describing those churches to the Christians in Corinth, Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. Their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. You know, the Macedonians, they weren't poor. They didn't need support. They could take care of themselves. They could get up and go to work in the morning. Their economy was functioning. They didn't need anything from anyone else. Instead, they begged to give to poorer Christians living in a faraway land. They begged to be able to do that. They gave, it says, beyond their ability, according to their ability, beyond their ability, and of their own accord. Have you ever noticed that these phrases are usually applied to a church building project? When it's declared they gave according to their ability, beyond their ability, and of their own accord, let's get some new carpeting. We have them written on our offering boxes in the back three corners, these similar words they gave beyond their ability. I'd like you to remember every Sunday as you walk by those boxes that as you put something in as an offering, you put it online, whatever that is, every time you put in and see those words that a portion of what we give in the proposed budget and going forward will go to the poor who belong to Christ. They belong to Christ. It's the ministry to the saints, Scripture says, not the ministry to self. Recognize the enormous amount, as I said earlier, the, the enormous amount of scriptural real estate that is devoted to this. Many, many pages, Old and New Testament, written about sharing with the poor, right? Proverbs, the Old Testament, Boaz, all of these places again and again, speaking about being charitable towards God's people. And then Paul writes, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That's speaking spiritually there. But then he says again, I give my opinion in this matter. This is the, the ministry of the saints again. For this is to your advantage. Who were, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to have the desire to do it. But now finish doing it. So that you just, uh, so that just as there was a readiness and desire to do it, so there may also be a completion of it according to your ability. That's the command by Paul. Complete the work that you started. Second Corinthians eight, in verse thirteen, he clarifies: For this is not for the 
ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need. You don't know what the future holds. You don't know what we may need a year from now or further from now. Paul says, this is so that there may be equality. And get this, get this quote right here. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much. And he who, ha- who gathered little had no lack. Another famous passage in the same context, the same topic. Folks, what a motivating, what a motivation for an investment uh, in a local church. Showing mercy exactly as God did to us on the poorest of the Christian brethren around the globe, far away countries and far away lands. And then the the balance of chapter 8, I'm not going to reread it. It's, it's then devoted to describing messengers who were sent bearing this wonderful gift. They, they chose a small delegation to take the money. They didn't have Western Union, all right? So, so they chose a small delegation to carry money and meet with Jerusalem face to face. You know, imagine the koinonia there. That means a spiritual communion. Together. Imagine the koinonia that would have been experienced when they, when they arrive with money that has life-saving qualities to it as those churches eventually met. You know, Crystal, uh, Crystal Rendell, or Rendell is in Niger. You can throw, I got a couple pictures here for you to make us think about this. Crystal is one of our missionaries. You can see her in the back hallway in Niger. And uh, she has visited here. You might have been here last summer when she came and shared some of the the lack that Christians in Niger experience, what they suffer. Uh, We learned of many needs of the Christian saints and that they are urgent. And we learned there are numerous channels available to minister to the poor through her sending agency. Her her sending agency is SIM, uh, Sudan, Sudan Interior Missions, SIM. That's her sending ministry. And SIM even operates a hospital, Christian hospital, in Niger that provides basic, basic health care in the name of Jesus. Let's see if we got a photo here. Uh-oh. I'll go the other way. Oh, that's a flood. If you got her newsletter, you just saw they had a devastating flood just here in the last few weeks in Niger. That's the hospital that SIM runs for the locals They minister in the name of Christ. What a tremendous opportunity to show mercy not only on God's people, but on those in the surrounding communities, uh, their whole community. Basic antibiotics, basic vaccinations that we take for granted, basic life-saving surgeries. There you see among their beds, they got a Bible up there at the front of the lectern as they're ministering to the poor and the sick. There is a surgery going on in this hospital. Diagnosing the poor. There is outside. That's not Crystal. That's another, another nurse there outside of the hospital, but taking care of the needs. 
There's the chapel that is part of this hospital or on the property of this hospital. This in a different location is clean water. Something we take so for granted. Clean drinking water. Um, as they're trying to do more of these water wells over there for communities as well in the name of Christ. Uh, for they have a lot of disease. So they go down deeper. They go deeper drill deep wells so they get to a clean aquifer. Many of them are just going to shallow wells that have been contaminated. Think of what uh, that provides for them. Folks, as we establish a, a couple of years of giving, get it under our belts, I know travel is expensive. I would love to send our own small delegation in the future. Small, small team two or three or four, to express our love and our concern, not only for Crystal's church, but for other churches, for that hospital, churches that that hospital serves. I think we're going to have the team led by Charles Lichtenberger over here. Oh, his eyes just got big. You know, Chuck is is probably the only one amongst us, I could be wrong, but Chuck and Janet as missionaries, are probably the only ones here who have actually ministered on the continent of Africa. Is it tough? It's tough for Christians over there. Uh, Crystal's parents, Jim and Sandy Rendell, who we've supported for years as well, he's come back. And he's like, the poverty that you see there among Christians and surrounding people that can be impacted, uh, he said, there is no lack of opportunity to provide just basic human essentials to our brothers and sisters in Christ that spills over, spills over into the surrounding community as well. Even if we can't justify travel expenses real soon, you know, we can share photos, we can share other communications as Crystal is a representative that we have on site. She's been there for years now. She speaks French. Uh, So we can visualize exactly what God is doing among the poor in Christ. We have other missionaries that we, we intend to talk to about this. Uh, Kim Hibbert is in India. She hasn't been back to be able to discuss this, but we're trying to find channels through people we know, you know, boots on the ground, and organizations that are long trusted so that we can minister to other Christians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, as we begin to wrap up here, Paul continues... He says, for it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. Verse 5, he says, so I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the name would be ready as a bountiful, the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Now this I say, another famous passage here, you ready? He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. More familiar verses. You tell me, is this written in the context of an urgency of replacing our carpet in the other building? I mean, that carpet does need replacing. 
But is that what this is talking about? Not even close. Not even close. Think about it, how often we have heard these verses applied to different things other than erasing the suffering of impoverished churches abroad. I don't think I've ever heard it elsewhere applied in this way. The case... uh, In the case there remains any question about the intended application of these passages, whether Paul is concerned only about Jerusalem saints or all churches, no, no, Paul continues saying this, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor, and His righteousness endures forever. Forever. These chapters aren't only talking about Jerusalem. If they were, we wouldn't have any need for reading them. It's talking about how we treat other Christians. And it prescribes a tangible poverty relief effort in obedience to our confession of the gospel. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God because of the proof given by this ministry, he says, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also, this is the benefit we get right here, among many other things. While they also, by praying on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. (laughs) They'll respond by praying our work grows. Right here in Port St. Lucie. You know, I've tried to figure out why American churches, I think I know, but why the American church remains so hard of hearing on this, so hard of hearing of the sermons I've heard over the years. I I don't recall a single message applying these passages in this context. I, I don't remember it anyhow. We have impoverished brethren abroad who Christ loves. We ought to love them too. We ought to love them too. We're a small church, admittedly a small church. Are are we going to eliminate world hunger? No. No. Will we lift a huge number of Christians above the poverty line? It's unlikely. It's unlikely. But this we can do. This we can do. We can be obedient to our confession of the gospel through this ministry to the saints. That is what we can do in our little church. We can be obedient and allow God to do what He's going to do. It will open up relationships with churches consisting of some of the most impoverished Christians around the globe. We'll have relationships with these folks directly and we'll get to visibly see what God has tangibly done through a ministry that is clearly prescribed in His Word. Folks, that's a vision for a church. That is a vision for a church. Jesus loved them when laying the foundation of the world. He purchased them with his own blood. What would the Lord have us do? What would the Lord have us do? 
The elders have proposed that we start by doubling our 2021 plan missions budget as the debt has expired December 31st this year to be used to scatter abroad and given to the poor. His righteousness, it always endures. Folks, that's an achievable vision. That's an achievable vision for any church. Any church can do that as we give a portion of what uh, a portion of our giving on the first day of every week. Let's pray. Father, as your word uh, illuminates uh, our hearts, as, as, we, as we search the scriptures and we find what not only what you have done through the redemption available through Christ Jesus, but through what you've done through your church. The love that you have expressed and shared towards the poor, both locally and abroad. Lord, you've commanded us to be generous. You've commanded us, commanded us Christians to have a reputation for caring for everyone, but particularly to care for your elect. Father, as you uh, guide this church in the future, as you sharpen us to be obedient, we pray that you'll be glorified. We pray that you'll be magnified. We pray that there will be some relief among the poor and that they will glorify Christ and his holy name. Father, as we share uh, now a lunch, we ask your blessing upon it as we share fellowship with one another and and look forward to the um, congregational meeting. Father, we pray that you give us guidance, that you do it through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.